The following message is from Temple Bible Church. For more information about the church and its ministries, visit www.templebiblechurch.org. We're going to be continuing our series on prayer this morning, and I think I was the first one to speak to an empty room on March 15th here at TBC, and I looked at the calendar and I saw that my next one's going to be April 26th, and I thought, I'm sure we'll all be back in here by then, and then, but here we are um, online once again. So thank you all for being patient with us as we lead you through all this. Um, I also want to just thank all the technical people at the back that you guys at home don't get to see. Uh, TJ and Danny, David, Caleb, and Richard are here this morning, and these guys have had to become TV producers virtually overnight, and so we're so grateful for what they do um, each week to make this thing happen. So we're starting uh, at week two here in our prayer series, and I, I can't imagine a better series during this time than one on prayer. Because probably our biggest excuse for not praying is what? I don't have time. And so none of us can say that right now. Not a one of us. And so you don't see many series in the church on prayer, and I think I know why. There probably isn't a topic where pastors feel more unworthy than the topic of prayer. John Owen once said, A minister may fill his pews, but what that minister is on his knees in secret before God Almighty, that he is and no more. I think we could just end the sermon right there, I think. Um, I don't feel qualified to talk to you about prayer. It's a struggle for me personally. Um, It's like preparing to speak on humility. It's just a struggle and it's convicting. So maybe again, that makes me perfectly qualified to speak to you on prayer this morning because I struggle just like you do. When I was in college, I worked at a different church for a few years and there was this pastor on staff at that church that really taught me how to pray and the importance of prayer. I mean, of course, before that, I was spending time in God's word and I was praying in my own ways, but this person, this pastor on staff at our church was just a whole different kind of person. And so one of the things that he would, he would do is he invited me and the college pastor to join him on a prayer walk through the college campus that I attended. And he said, I want you to go on this prayer walk. And I thought, we're going to pray for, for how long? And so we, we go on this prayer walk, and, and he's just walking us through the campus. And we're praying over the campus and praying that God would move in a powerful way. And the two hours went by so fast compared to what I thought it would be. And then a few weeks later, there's a girl in our youth group at the time who had a, uh, an emotional breakdown and had to go spend some time in a hospital. And so this pastor initiated a bunch of us coming together and praying, about 20 of us coming and meeting together at this girl's parents' home at around 6.30 in the morning each morning for seven straight days and just interceding for her and praying for her. And so as I, as I watched this, this person teach me the value and importance of prayer, it, it really had two effects on me. On the one hand, he taught me to pray, but also felt vastly inferior to how he prayed. And I thought, if I can't do it like that, then why even try? And I imagine whenever you hear that we're talking about prayer, you might feel some excitement, like someone's finally going to show me how to pray, but I also think you might experience fear and trepidation because you feel like you just don't measure up. And this is why I think this series will be just as much about the gospel as about prayer. They go hand in hand. So last week, Tim said that we are designed to pray, 
And I know, we know that we are designed to communicate. Babies come into this world trying to communicate, and they cry out. I mean, kids in grade school get in trouble for doing what? Not for being too quiet, but for talking in class. The most coveted gift for a junior high or high school student is, of course, a phone because of communication. They want to communicate with their friends. I had a student one time say this, when my parents take away my phone, it's like death. And so I I understand many of them are coming from that place. We have this innate desire to connect with people and to communicate with each other. But for some reason, when it comes to God, concerning God, it, it feels like it requires work and effort. And so I think we should take comfort knowing the disciples also felt this inadequacy concerning prayer. In Luke chapter 11, verse 1, which is what this whole series is based on, It says, now Jesus was praying in a certain place, and when he finished, one of his disciples said to him, Lord, teach us to pray as John taught his disciples. So you and I know people that can make us feel inadequate, but can you imagine how the disciples must have felt watching Jesus pray? They would see him pray, and I'm sure feel very inadequate, but their inadequacy led to a curiosity. They wanted to learn how to pray. And this is our hope for you through this series, that this inadequacy that you and I, we all feel it, that it would lead to a curiosity and a desire to learn how to pray. So this morning we're going to cover the three movements of prayer. And this is not meant to be a formula, but I want you to see there's three movements of prayer as you think about your prayer life. And the first one is this upward movement of prayer. This is praising God or giving thanks to God. Now, most of us know that we're supposed to praise God and give thanks to God. And if you grew up in the church, it's just a given that you're supposed to come in here and and sing songs and and give prayers of praise to God. But if you didn't grow up in the church, it may not be a given as, 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 as to why Christians do that or why God is wanting Christians to do that. And so if you're not yet a follower of Christ, the idea of praising God might seem like a strange idea. Because if you apply that to a person, if a person demands praise, we would say that's prideful or arrogant. So why is, why do we praise God? Why does God want us to praise him? C.S. Lewis addresses this in his book, Reflections on the Psalms, and he raises the question, why do we praise anything at all? So why do we praise, go to an art museum and praise a beautiful picture or read a good book or watch a good movie and then give those things praise? Why do we do those things? Because we see something inherently good in those things. And so praise just naturally flows out of us when we see those kinds of things. So this kind of praise never feels like an obligation for us because we see the beauty and the goodness and truth in something and praise just comes out. It just comes out naturally. And we want to share it with other people. We want to tell other people about it. Hey, go, go read this book, go watch this movie, go to this art museum. And so praise just comes out whenever you and I enjoy something. So this was the realization that C.S. Lewis had. Whenever you and I enjoy something, it just naturally overflows into praise. So he writes, I think we delight to praise what we enjoy because the praise not merely expresses, but completes the enjoyment The delight is incomplete until it is expressed. 
So Lewis believed that to praise something was simply to express enjoyment of that person or that thing. And the expression led to a completion of the joy. So whenever I go into a, a HEB or somewhere to buy my wife a Valentine's Day card, I always go and I start reading through the different cards and I try to find one that sounds like something I would say. And so I open up the card and I read it and I, I'm blown away at how many of the, this is probably true for most of the, the cards that, that husbands are buying for their wives, but how many of these cards will say things like, I know I don't say this enough, but I still love you. And I would say these cards deserve their own section called the guilty section, but amazing how many cards will say that because as men, we often don't utter the words. We don't say the words. And so I think what Lewis is, his point is the enjoyment is incomplete until we say the words. We need to utter the words of praise because it brings completion to the enjoyment. In the early days of a relationship, the enjoyment of someone overflows into praise naturally. Tim talked about this last week when he talked about loading his wife's room full of flowers and a ladybug infestation. And so in the early days of a relationship, enjoying someone just overflows into praise naturally. And so when the Bible commands praise, it is flowing out of seeing God for who he is and enjoying God for who he is. Psalms 136 verses 1 to 3 says, praise the Lord, praise the name of the Lord. Give praise, O servants of the Lord, who stand in the house of the Lord, in the courts of the house of our God. Praise the Lord, for the Lord is good. Sing to his name, for it is pleasant. So praise comes from seeing the inherent beauty and goodness of God. And if you and I can see this connection between praising God and enjoying him, then we're not going to see it as arrogant that God wants praise. We just see it as God wants us to enjoy him for who he is, and that's going to naturally overflow into praise and thanksgiving. So you and I live in a culture that only wants to do something if we feel it first. We live in a culture that says, I'm only going to do what I feel. And if I don't feel something, then I'm not going to do it because it feels inauthentic to do something that I have a feeling to back it up. And so in our culture, feeling leads to doing. And so if I don't feel like praising, then I'm not going to praise God. But we don't treat other things this way. And the Psalms, you'll see over the course of our summer series in the Psalms, the Psalms are full of people giving praise to God even when they don't feel it. And so C.S. Lewis challenged this idea, I think. He talked about in another book of his that exclaiming praise and putting words to it, even when you don't feel it, can bring about a change in the heart. Exclaiming praise can change the heart. Praising God can bring our heart in alignment with who God is. And so how big of a deal is it if we don't praise God or thank him? I want you to look at Romans chapter 1, verse 21. It says, for although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. So in this section, Paul describes the essence of sin and what does he put right at the center of this verse, verse 21. 
They did not honor him as God or give thanks to him. So you might read that and think, that's it? That's the, that's the essence of sin? We don't give thanks enough? That sounds kind of anticlimactic, right? So why is not giving thanks or praise such a big deal? Well, when I was in college, I was a journalism major, and we had this class called Communication Law. It was the hardest class that I had in my entire major at the school I went to, and where we went over issues like libel and slander and plagiarism. Of course, plagiarism being to take someone's idea and to pass it off as your own. It's a refusal to give thanks and credit where credit is due. It's a form of theft. So to not give God praise is to steal credit from God. It is an act of cosmic plagiarism to not thank God and praise God for who he is and what he has done. All sin comes from this central sin of the heart, not honoring God or thanking him. So every act of marital unfaithfulness or lust or coveting or theft arises from not being thankful for what God has already given to us. So how do you and I start to develop these habits of praise? Well, I think we have to say these things out loud and in prayer. It does no good to say, I just think it, I don't need to say it, God knows my heart. We need to say these things in prayer to God because saying it completes the enjoyment. Secondly, we need to begin to see the simple pleasures of life as gifts from his good hand. So I want you to think about all the the pleasures that he gives us in this life. Fun, humor, friendship, marriage, good food and drink. Many of you will partake right after this service, most likely, if not during, there on your couch in your living rooms. We don't let you guys eat or drink in here inside the auditorium, but you guys can do whatever you want in your own house. So we don't, we don't think about these things that often, but just think about the, how amazing it is when you come to a church service, you normally go out to lunch afterwards, and just the, the blessing of the taste of food and how much of a blessing that really is. You and I don't tend to give God praise for the simple pleasures of life, but he didn't have to make food taste good. He could have made it taste, all taste like cardboard, right? But God gives us blessings in ways that we don't even think about or appreciate. You might say it like this. God is the great who behind all the great what's of the world. So when you think about everything we enjoy in this world ultimately comes from his good hand. And we can praise him and thank him for those things. And so when you think about what can I praise God for, of course your salvation, of course his grace and mercy in your life, but think about just the daily blessings that God bestows upon his people that we just take for granted and don't even think about. So there is this upward movement of prayer, of praise and thanks. And I've covered this one first. I think this, was, this is primary because it's going to motivate the other two that we're going to talk about. I think many of us in our prayer lives, we jump straight to a list of requests, typically. I read a story about a woman who had, she would pray by going straight to her list of needs. But then she realized 
that would just drive her to more anxiety. And so she started this habit of praising and thanking God first, and she began to notice a change. By the time she would get to her list of needs, she said this, now I find I can put them in his hands, and I feel the burden coming off of me rather than on me. And so this is why I think praise needs to be primary, because You'll see how it motivates the other kinds of prayer we're going to talk about. So the first movement of prayer is upward. The second movement of prayer is inward. And this might be the hardest step because this requires intense self-examination. And so this is referring to confession and repentance. We just finished our Easter series, so I'm not going to belabor this point. But the story of the cross and the resurrection points to a divine paradox And the divine paradox is this, forgiveness is free, but also costly at the same time. If you and I are in Christ, there is no sin that puts us back under condemnation, but that doesn't mean that we get to take sin lightly. And on the other hand, sin is so serious that Jesus had to die. And so Tim Tim Keller in his book on prayer says it like this, Only when we see both the freeness and the cost of forgiveness will we get relief from the guilt as well as liberation from the power of sin in our lives. I think many of us make a mistake in one direction or the other. We either think forgiveness is easy or we say, how can God forgive me? And so we live a life of shame. If we see forgiveness only as free, we're going to live this entitled life If we see it only as costly, we're going to live in shame, steeped in shame. So we've got to hold these two ideas together in tension. We've got to hold the the freeness and the costliness of forgiveness in tension together. And so if someone forgets the freeness of forgiveness, they might repent, but they might do it in a self-righteous way. Now you might say, well, I thought that all repentance was good. How can there be such a thing as, a, as bad repentance? Well, 2 Corinthians chapter 7 talks about this, where Paul writes, For godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret, whereas, whereas worldly grief produces death. So all, all sorrow is not equal. The Bible talks about a worldly sorrow and a godly sorrow. Godly sorrow leading to repentance Worldly sorrow leading to death. Godly grief leads to real repentance. Worldly sorrow might lead to grief because you've lost position or lost standing with certain people or lost standing in a career or job, but ultimately it doesn't lead to true repentance. This person might repent externally, they might stop the behavior just to get their standing back with certain people. But this person focuses only on the outside, but they're often blind to the heart attitudes behind their sin. And so we have to remember the freeness of forgiveness, but we also cannot forget how costly it is. Otherwise, our repentance becomes shallow and trivial. I think many of us in the church, we see confession only as admission of guilt, We sin in some way, we sin against someone, and we think confession is just simply to admit it and to move on. 
John Stott wrote a book called Confess Your Sins, and in the book he says real repentance involves not just confessing sin, but also forsaking sin. And he says this quote, we begin by admitting the sin for what it is, but then secondly, we forsake it, rejecting and repudiating it. This is to adopt a right attitude towards both God and the sin itself. How often do we, do you and I, confess and repent about attitudes that are in the heart instead of just our external actions? We need to see sin not only as dangerous. So many of us will turn away from sin because we just see it as, yeah, it's dangerous. I don't want to harm myself or harm others. But we forget to see it that this sin really grieves the heart of God. We forget that sin is a violation of a relationship, not just a rule. We're going to see this in the Psalms all during our summer series. And I wish I had time to develop this idea more this idea of the inward movement of sin, of, of prayer. But I want to read to you something we're going to post. It should be posted online right now on our website. But this is a further development of how you can exercise this inward movement of prayer in your life. And this comes from a, a writing by George Whitfield, the evangelist. And he had this habit of asking himself questions. I'm not going to read them all right now, but you can read them online later on. But he would ask himself these questions as he examined his own heart, as he did this inward movement of prayer. He would say things like, have I looked down on anyone? Have I been too stung by criticism? Have I avoided people or tasks that I know I should face? Have I been anxious and worried? And he would say this to himself, it takes pride to be anxious, and I recognize I am not wise enough to know how my life should go. He would ask questions like, have I spoken or thought unkindly of anyone? Have I been impatient and irritable? Have I been self-absorbed, indifferent, inattentive to people? Am I doing what I do for God's glory and the good of others, or am I being driven by fears, need for approval, love of comfort and ease, need for control, hunger for acclaim and power, or the fear of other people? Am I looking at anyone with envy? And he would ask himself these questions as he would do this inward movement of prayer so I want to encourage you to go online later on today and, and download a copy of that. You can keep that with you. And just, these are, these are examinations and considerations to think about as we think about this part of prayer. The next movement of prayer is outward. This is simply asking God for help. This could include for yourself, for other people, for the world, for those around you. And I love how these three movements tie into our core values. You've got upward and inward, which tie pretty well into surrender. Then you've got outward, which ties into community and mission. And some people might see this kind of prayer, this is petition prayer, as the lowest form of prayer. But that's not true. We're told to pray in this way. We're commanded by God to pray in this way. So other people might ask, well, how, do we make, how can we make sense of God's sovereignty in prayer? That's a question that many people have. How can I make sense of God's sovereignty in prayer? How do they fit together? Well, I love this verse in Nehemiah chapter 4, verse 9. While, while we were building Jerusalem's walls, the Jews learned that their enemies were going to attack them. And so in Nehemiah chapter 4, verse 9, it says, We prayed to our God and posted a guard day and night, to meet the threat. 
So they didn't just pray, and they didn't just take action. They did both. And I can't think of a, of a more timely passage as it relates to our current situation today. As we pray for an end to this pandemic, but we're also called as believers to live with wisdom and discernment. That means we respect medical personnel. We wear, you might wear a face mask. You, we social distance. We avoid large gatherings. We do what we're being asked to do because we can do both. We can, um, we can pray. We can also post a guard, so to speak, as I do here in Nehemiah chapter 4, verse 9. And to do both doesn't mean you lack faith. And so we have a responsibility, but we're also going to be people that trust a sovereign God, and we can do both. So how do we make sense of prayer and God's sovereignty? You might say it like this. God has a sovereign plan, but part of his plan is that we pray. So there is certainly some mystery here. I'm not sure how all that works out, but we know God is sovereign, but in his sovereign plan, he wants his people to pray. And he wants his people to go to him in prayer. And so in John chapter 14, verses 13 and 14, Jesus in the upper room discourse, he tells his disciples how he wants them to pray. And he says this, whatever you ask in my name, this I will do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask me anything in my name, I will do it. Now, of course, many can take this passage out of context and say, you see, if you just utter the words in Jesus' name, he'll do whatever you want him to do. And that's not what it's talking about. This is not some magical incantation or genie in a bottle situation. To pray in his name means to ask for things that give him glory. It's to ask for things that are agreeable to his will. It's to ask for things that Jesus would sign his name to. So a great question to ask is, well, can you and I ask for things that, that we desire? And I would say, well, yeah, if those desires are not sinful. If you're single and desire to be married, it's fine to pray for a spouse. You're married and you want to have kids and you can't have kids right now, like it's fine to pray that you can have kids. It's fine to pray that God provides for means for a new job or a new career. It's fine to pray for things that you desire as long as those things are not sinful It's okay to pray for those things. I don't know if he'll say yes, but we can certainly pray for those things. If God is sovereign, then there is no such thing as unanswered prayer for the Christ follower. Again, in his book on prayer, Keller writes, God will either give us what we ask or give us what we would have asked if we knew everything he knew. It's really scary when I think back on certain prayers I prayed in my teen years and college years. And what if God gave me what I asked? I can tell you, I wouldn't be standing on this stage right now giving this sermon. My family's here in the auditorium with us. I wouldn't be married to the person I'm married to today or have the kids that I have if God had given me answers in the affirmative to certain prayers I prayed when I was in high school and college. And so I thank God that he said no to certain prayers that I was praying for back then. And in Romans chapter eight, verse 26, Paul says, even if we don't know what to pray for, the spirit of God intercedes on our behalf. Can you just 
meditate on that thought for a minute, that the Godhead, the Trinity, the Spirit of God is interceding for you with the Father on our behalf, only to know what those prayers are like. That the Trinity, a person of the Trinity is praying for you and for me. What an amazing thought that is. And in Luke chapter 11, right after Jesus teaches the disciples on the Lord's Prayer, in Luke chapter 11, verse 8, Jesus tells a story where he says that we should pray with, and the word is impudence. In the Greek, that means shameless audacity. Or to boldly go before God in prayer. So Jesus wants us, you and I, to persist in prayer and to do it boldly. He wants us to come to him with confidence and boldness and to do that in prayer. I still would say that the year between college and seminary for me, it was kind of like a gap year for me, was one of the toughest years of my life. And I didn't really know what direction I was going to go in, if it was going to be ministry. I wasn't really feeling the call towards that at that point. But then over the course of that year, I began to feel this pull towards seminary. But the question was, how am I going to pay for it? I don't have the money to pay for that, and I was going to be on my own to pay for those kinds of things. And, and I just decided at the suggestion of a friend, he said, hey, you know what? Just go and spend a day and fast and pray. And I thought, I've never fasted for anything in my life. And so I decided this one day to set aside and to fast and pray for this one specific thing. And the thing I was praying for was, God, I'm feeling this pull to go to seminary. I feel like you're calling me there, but I don't know how we're going to provide for that or pay for that. Can, can I just, can you provide a job that would give the flexibility for, for classes and studying and writing long papers in school, but could also pay my bills? And I spent the day just fasting and praying for this one thing. And that afternoon, I go and meet with the pastor who's mentoring me. And during that meeting, he gets a phone call from a friend. And that, that conversation ends up leading me to the job that was going to pay my way through school the same day I fasted and prayed for that thing. And so I followed up on that. And that ended up being a three-year job that paid every dime of my seminary education. And I saw God provide in a powerful way. And so God wants us to go to him in boldness in prayer as we seek his will for our lives. In Luke chapter 18, verse one, it says, and he told them a parable to the effect that they ought always to pray and not lose heart. And then Jesus here goes on to tell a story about this persistent widow who persists in asking over and over and over again. And why does he tell that story? Well, he says, Jesus says right here, so that they would pray and not lose heart. See, Jesus sees this connection between praying and not losing heart. I wonder how many of us are in that place right now. I know in this um, situation that we're all in, we, we have this feeling of there's many of us that have lost heart in various ways. And whenever you and I stop praying, it shows that we have lost heart. So where have you lost heart? Where have you lost hope? Where, have, where in your life have you stopped praying and boldly going before God and asking him to provide, asking him to intervene, asking him to 
intercede on our behalf. So where have you lost heart and where have you stopped praying in your lives? So I hope during this series, we hope this feeling of inadequacy that we all feel and experience will lead to a curiosity and a desire for us to pray. Let's pray together. God, we're humbled that you allow us to come into a relationship with you and that you want us to experience that relationship in a real way through prayer. And we know that prayer is gonna be the means of grace that you use in our lives to bring us close to you as we give praise and thanksgiving to you, but also as we come and just examine our hearts, examine ourselves and repent and confess, but also as we intercede for the people around us, for ourselves and for our city, we pray, God, that you would awaken us and bring life to us, especially in this area of prayer, Father. We pray this in your name, amen.